In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 3. The book of Judges relates the events in Israel's history when it was delivered by different judges or rescuers. While most of the attention in the book falls on famous judges like Deborah and Samson, 12 judges are mentioned, three of which we'll hear about today, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Good morning and blessed Lenten tide. Today is Thursday, March 30th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Explore their many offerings of foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, to help us explore Chapter 3 of Judges, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Pastor Eckstein, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good to be back. Well, it's great to have you. Um, we're going through Judges, which, um, you know, I admitted off the air, is, is not a book that I have gone through in quite a long time. There are so many famous characters, so to speak, that we hear about from Sunday school lessons, uh, and we certainly preach on it too, but um, there's a lot more to Judges than just uh, Deborah and Samson, as exciting as their stories are, and we're going to find that out today as we hear about the first three Judges. Um, I hope things have been going well for you, though, during your uh, Lenten tide um, excitement. I mean, you know, it's, it's wrapping up. Next week is Holy Week. It just it seems like it's flown by. Yes. Well, you know, it's always a crazy time, but it's also a blessed time as, as you, you journey through Lent towards Easter and, and focus on the heart, core, and center of our faith, you know, our Lord's uh, life, death, and resurrection for us. So it's always a wonderful time. Well, I think so, too. In fact, the Holy Week is one of my favorite times of the year. You know, we uh, not just for Palm Sunday and Monday Thursday, but you know, Good Friday, even though it's somber, it's just so reflective. I do a, uh, a Holy Saturday vigil with a bonfire and everything at the church, which is wonderful. And then, of course, nobody can beat uh, Easter Sunday. So it's just, I think it's just a wonderful time. It's like the whole life of the church wrapped up into yeah. a week's worth of services. And frankly, you know, I'll just say it, I don't think people take advantage of those services as much as they should. I mean, yes, I'm a pastor, we all say that, but this is one of those weeks where, yeah, there's a lot of church, but it's worth you coming to all of it. Oh, absolutely. In fact, just a, a little story, a testimony. A, a few years ago when my daughter was still in college at Concordia University in St. Paul, she, she brought home a friend of hers from college to stay with us during uh, the Easter break. And um, uh, her friend was a foreign exchange student from China, raised as an atheist. And uh she got to experience the whole, like you said, uh, uh, you know, uh, core uh, essence of the Christian faith during Holy Week. She came to every one of the Holy Week services with our family. And long story short, uh, it made such an impact on her. When she got back to college, she, she started going to church with my daughter. And uh, a few weeks later, she converted to Christ and, and was baptized, you know, so we, we praise the Lord for that. But when she was in the services during Holy Week, uh, she was just engaged because, you know, I really got to hit on the core essence of the gospel with, with, with what 
Christ was doing during Holy Week, and it just made an impact on her. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I wish uh, those who are already Christians would would take advantage of that, because this young lady was certainly touched by that message. Well, there's a phrase I used a couple weeks ago on the show, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. And I, I was talking about in terms of the Bible, like we have such access to the Bible, people really don't treasure it as much as perhaps they should. It's the same thing with church. We kind of get used to the story of what Christ has done, and it it creates an obstacle in our brains of really contemplating and understanding it. And so even for the even for the Christian, yeah, be a part of Holy Week because I think it's a it's a refreshing opportunity to see uh, anew what Christ has done for you in some pretty dramatic ways. So, yeah, that's a wonderful story though about your uh, daughter's friend. So we are going to keep on going, but before we do, I think it'd be best if we started with some prayer. So I'm going to invite you to uh, begin our time together with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we uh, go through this book of Judges over the coming weeks, uh, we thank you so much that here you teach us not only that that you use various people and and individuals to to help us with our earthly needs and and when it is your will to save us from our earthly enemies but even more we're going to learn from the book of judges how how you are our ultimate king and that the the true savior the tr- true regime redeemer the true judge that we need is your son who who came to deliver us not not merely from our earthly enemies in difficult circumstances but from our true enemies of sin death and the devil and so as we go through the book of judges help us to see that as much as we trust in you to provide for our earthly needs what we need from you even more is for you to deliver us uh from uh the the challenges and difficulties our true enemies that we have uh which is ultimately our own rebellion against you uh when we have your forgiveness and your love and the eternal hope that we have in your son we have truly been given the redemption that we need so bless us to that end, Lord, to understand this as we go through the book of Judges. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we heard yesterday, um, we—well, actually, it wouldn't have been yesterday. It had been the day before, but that's okay. As we heard in the last program, we have uh, heard this refrain from Judges that Israel did evil in the eyes or in the sight of Yahweh, and— because of this, he raised up judges, and that's that's where we came to yesterday. Uh, the, the last verses before chapter 3 are, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of Yahweh as their fathers did or not. And so now we have chapter 3, which uh, gives us, well, at least it begins with a list of the nations that the Lord left behind. And so I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to get us started, which really introduces, or I guess I really should say continues the thought from last time, but introduces the idea that um, these are the contenders that Israel will have to deal with and from whom the judges will save them. So let's talk about it now. I'm going to read it uh, from the English Standard Version. Here we go. Now these are the nations that Yahweh left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, 
from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of Yahweh, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So here we have, uh, you know, uh, Sidonians and Hivites and Hittites and Amorites, Perizzites, all that, we, and we've heard these names plenty even in the New Testament uh, as it references this time. So what I think is fascinating, and I'm, and I'm certainly eager to hear how you're going to take us through it, but I just want to focus on or make sure you focus on this idea that uh, it was so that Israel might know war and to teach war to those who had not known it before. I think that's one of the verses that stands out to me. But uh, take us through this. What, 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 is, what is going on here? Oh, boy, there's so much here in, in these first six verses. First of all, uh, even though uh, as, as believers we, we pray for peace, uh, even now, when we think uh, about the ongoing conflict over with Russia and Ukraine, you know, we we pray for peace, and 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 we hear people sometimes talk about, oh, are we going to ever end up with war with China or something like that? And and of course, we, we none of us want that, and we, we and we pray for peace on earth, and yet here we see that living in a fallen world might mean inevitably that evil needs to be restrained, and that means. The, the necessity for necessity of what you might call a just war. And so I find it very interesting here that God is, is, is uh, using these unbelieving nations around Israel to give this new generation of Israelites an opportunity to become hardened, so to speak, uh, battle ready, so that, that, that they're ready to fight against evil and, uh, and stand up for what is right. And uh, I, I think of how applicable that is in our own generations. You know, the, the, the temptation as parents is to say, well, you know, I'm working really, really hard so that my children can have an easy life. Well, maybe it's not the best thing to give our children an easy life. <laughs> you know, maybe each generation needs to have some challenges so that they can learn, you know, a work ethic and how to be self-disciplined and, and how to be ready to stand up uh, and make sacrifices uh, for what is good. And I think that's what, what God is doing here. So the mystery is, on the one hand, we can pray that God would give us peace. We can pray that God would, would, would deliver us from our enemies. And at the same time, sometimes God allows us to face challenges and difficulties in this life precisely so that we can learn to become self-disciplined, um, to, to, to grow and mature in our strength, uh, to resist evil and 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 to take that stand this side of heaven while we still in the world live in a world where sadly we're going to have to battle against evil from time to time so so I just find it so interesting here that God uh, even though it was initially his will to drive these people out he now plans to use these people that remain who are there because the previous generation didn't do their job. He, he's going to use these nations to actually help the next generation of Israelites to, to develop, um, you know, some skills in, 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 you know, fighting evil and standing up for themselves. The only problem though, is we find out from verse six, <laughs> it says their daughters, they took to themselves for wives, their own daughters, they gave to their sons and they served their gods. Sadly, here we see that rather than standing for truth, taking a, 
uh, a strong stand against evil. Sadly, we find out that the, the ongoing theme throughout this period of Judges is that many generations of God's people compromise their faith in the Lord um, and, and end up um, uh, taking on the ways of the nations around them, the ungodly ways, e- even to the point of letting their sons and daughters intermarry with these unbelievers uh, to the point where they end up serving their other gods. So uh, on the one hand here, we see that God wants a people that's ready to stand up and sacrifice for standing for the truth. And yet, as we're going to see, they compromise God's word again and again. And so God has to constantly intervene, uh, discipline them. And and then when they finally do repent and, and cry out to God, he will provide them judges. But, but we see this cycle going on over and over again through this period of judges. You know, you talked about making them hard for war, and it makes sense. Now, I don't know why I thought about this, but I thought about Johnny Cash's song, A Boy Named Sue, right? It's sort of, it's sort of this idea that I'm going to put you in a position where you have to, you really have to be able to defend yourself. Um, but at the same time, you mentioned uh, that, you know, he had promised to drive out the nations, and then here he he didn't. And so the fact that God didn't drive out the enemies of his people I mean, certainly that doesn't indicate that he couldn't do it. Of course he could. Um, but it. But how do we reconcile the idea that this is not a broken promise? I mean, I suppose right. that it's conditional. There was some conditions that they didn't meet. How do you see that? Well, it's interesting. You know, earlier it says, you know, in, in verse 21 of chapter 2, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. So, um, you know, obviously this ends up being a bit of a mystery that we can't quite always understand, but ideally Joshua was supposed to completely drive out the nations, which he didn't do. And, uh, and as a result, uh, it's almost like God is saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to discipline Israel for that, show them what it's like to be surrounded, uh, by these unbelievers. In other words, it's, it's almost like God was saying, there was a reason I told Joshua to get rid of all these people, because they're going to be a constant thorn in your side. And now you're going to learn what happens when you don't obey me. But at the same time, God is saying, okay, even though these nations are here because you didn't do what I asked you to do initially, I'm going to actually use these nations uh, to test you, uh, to, to help you to realize how much you need to depend on me and trust in me in order to be delivered from these enemies. Now, of course, even though it's God's will to test them for their spiritual good, we, we know what happens. R- rather than trusting in the Lord, they, they, they compromise. And so God has to lower the, bro- lower the boom, so to speak, time and again to break them, to humble them until they're truly repentant. And then he finally sends them deliverers. But, you know, the theme you're going to see again and again as you go through the book of Judges is that after God delivers them through a particular judge, things are good for a little while until the judge dies. And then the next generation, they, they lose sight of, of the, what the previous generation learned, and they repeat that horrible cycle all over again. So if there's one thing we also learn from the book of Judges is that God would have us pass on the truth to the next generation. He would have us raise the next generation with the wisdom God has given us. But when that doesn't happen, when we don't pass on the faith to the next generation, uh, it doesn't take long for them to compromise God's word. So, so here we see that the fact that these nations exist is because Joshua disobeyed. He, he didn't get rid of all the, the nations like God wanted him to. And, and so now God is going to use this, uh, hopefully, to test his people and help them learn from that mistake. But as we're going to see, 
uh, God's people are slow to learn. Now, this is just a little bit of an aside, but in verse 6, you know, he, he says this, that they, their daughters they took for themselves as wives, and they gave their own daughters um, to, you know, their sons, etc. And the consequences are that when they intermarried with these people, that they ended up being led astray from the one true God. And the sad fact is there have been times in our history where this passage and passages like it have been used to condemn things like interracial marriage or interethnicity right. marriages. Um, and that's certainly not the case, uh, but I guess expound a little bit for people who might be confused uh, why God is saying, you know, be, uh, do not, do not, um, um, you know, between nations, marry out, marry outside. You know, he, he's, he gives them this rule and it seems hard, and it's been misused, but there is a good reason for it. Absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, I do agree that the Bible is opposed to mixed marriages, but you have to define what the Bible means by that. Right. The Bible does not understand mixed marriages as, oh, uh, a person with uh, uh, less melanin in their skin should not marry a person with more melanin in their skin. I mean, the whole the whole modern notion of racism, where people are segregated based on the color of their skin, is it, it, simply not biblical. Right. Um, the the Bible is clear. There's only one race, the human race. So whether you have lighter or darker skin, or different color eyes, or different color hair, none of that matters in Scripture. We're all you know, human beings created in the image of God. So in the Bible, uh, the mixed marriage that is forbidden is between believers and unbelievers. Um, God you know, wants us to have spiritual unity in our marriages. And so for a believer in Christ to marry somebody who rejects Christ, God, and his ways uh, is to leave a huge gap in what God intended to be uh, 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 an important uh, unifying factor in a marriage. And, and so not only can we not have the kind of marriages uh, God wants us to have if a believer marries an unbeliever, but what does that mean for how we raise our children in the faith? If you don't have a unified spiritual uh, belief between husband and wife, how's that going to affect the children? And then there's always the concern, you know, I, I have heard, unfortunately, in, in my ministry, some people say, well, pastor, I take my faith seriously. And even though the person I want to marry doesn't believe in Jesus, I, I think I can change him or her. <laughs> Well, first of all, I always explain you should not think of marriage as a missionary uh, <laughs> you know, enterprise. Right. You don't marry someone in order to be a missionary to them because the Bible's clear. You know, don't be unequally yoked. Secondly, um, there's no guarantee that you're going to change your spouse. In fact, there's the great danger that your spouse might influence you in the wrong direction. And we see that happening here. When, when the believing people of Israel married the unbelieving people of these pagan nations, what does it say here? And they served their gods. Apparently, more times than not, it was the unbelievers that led the believers away from the Lord rather than the reverse. And so Scripture is very clear that as Christian parents, we should raise our children, teaching them that the number one thing you look for in a spouse is that they have a, a, a strong faith in Jesus. And, and I've talked about them in our confirmation classes. You know, the, the kids aren't even maybe even dating age yet. But I, I make it very clear to them, you know, what are you, when you get to that age where you're ready to date for the purpose of finding out if someone's a marriage partner, the number one thing you want to look for is do they take their faith in Jesus seriously? So in other words, I say to them, so if, if you uh, see somebody you're interested in and you find out they're not a Christian, you shouldn't even date them. 
I mean, if you understand dating as, as trying to find a marriage partner, uh, you, you shouldn't even date a non-believer because the whole idea of marrying them should be uh, a, a non-issue. It, it's something you shouldn't consider doing. And yet what, what, what concerns me is that uh, over the decades I have I've witnessed situations where people are Christians, but they don't understand what that means for who they marry. And, it, and, it, and often there can be tragic results with that. Very good explanation, because, I mean, that is something that people struggle with sometimes. And, you know, we even would have struggles between, say, a Lutheran and a Baptist. While both are Christian, you know, part of the, ha- part of the thing that has to be considered is the confession that you're going to raise your children up in. And that's something that people need to think long and hard against, uh, or about, I should say, not necessarily against. But whether they're going to make that move or not, they should consider that. Well, before right. we move into the very first judge— uh, maybe it'd be a good time to remind the folks uh, what we mean by judge, right? This isn't, they're not like sitting behind a, uh, a, 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 in a courtroom behind a big desk with a gavel in their hand, are they? Uh, maybe they are. I don't right. know. <laughs> Explain it to us. In fact, I, I've been tempted at times just to, uh, you know, because let's face it, we're re- English translation is just that, a translation. And I've often wondered how helpful uh, the English word judges here. I, I've almost been tempted to rename the book, you know, the book of saviors or the book of redeemers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because um, w- w- when people hear judge, they think of the guy in the courtroom, like you said. But but here we see that the judges are individuals that God raises up to save his people from their earthly enemies and, and, and often the, the horrible circumstances they brought upon themselves. Um, but he raises these people up to deliver them, to rescue them, Uh, from these circumstances. But one thing we have to learn from the book of Judges, too, is even though it's primarily earthly deliverance, that is, rescuing them from their earthly enemies, there's also a spiritual component here. Now, some judges are better than others when it comes to the spiritual aspect. I mean, Samson was not always, for example, you're going to, when you, when you get to Samson down the road here, he, he was not only always the best spiritual example. (laughs) Right. Um, But the point is God was not merely concerned with delivering them from their earthly enemies. He also wanted them to, to have spiritual deliverance, which means uh, to come back to God and to, and to be faithful to his word and his promises. And so with that said, the, these judges that we see in the Old Testament who are actually saviors, redeemers, that God uses to, to rescue them from their earthly enemies, they become pictures of the ultimate judge, that is, the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate savior, who is God's son who came into this world not to save us from our earthly enemies, but as the angel said to Joseph, you know, name the baby Jesus, a Hebrew name that means God saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So here we see that, that the book of Judges really points us ahead to our true king, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, who is our true judge that is our Savior and Redeemer, who's come to rescue us from our greatest enemy, our own rebellion against God, and uh, the death and damnation we deserve because of it. Uh, so these earthly judges point ahead to, to our ultimate Redeemer. Very well said. We're going to read verses 7 through 11, because this is the first judge mentioned, or Redeemer or Rescuer, however you want to say it. Here we go. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. 
and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of Yahweh was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and Yahweh gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. All right, so we hear for the second time in Judges, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, and certainly not for the last time. Uh, but uh, And we get introduced to the first judge. One, well, I guess probably if someone said, name a judge, this would not, even though he's the first one mentioned, would not be the first one I would think of. Tell us uh, what we know and don't know about Othniel. Well, again, uh, we don't know uh, a lot. Uh, it, it does mention that, that uh, he was um, uh, Caleb's younger brother and, uh, you know, and, and son of, of, of Kenaz. But uh, uh, apart from the fact that God used him uh, to uh, deliver uh, Israel from these pagan uh, nations, uh, it, you know, uh, we don't know a whole lot more about him. But, um, but what we do know is, uh, and, 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 and again, we're not even given all the details of exactly his exploits. You know, what are the details of what he actually did to help them uh, overcome the enemy? We're, we're just not told that. We're just told that, um, you know, when they cried out to God, he raised up a deliverer, and uh, Othaniel was used by God to save them. Uh, now, it does say the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. Now, I find that interesting. Um, I would argue here that even though God used Othaniel, uh to to uh, help them uh, uh, fight against their enemies and 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 give them freedom, I find it very interesting when it says that the spirit of the Lord was upon Othaniel and he judged Israel. Um, so I think there's more to this than he simply used them to uh, you know uh, fight against their enemies and 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 gain victory. But but that I think there was a spiritual component here. Um, he he uh, uh, was moved by God's spirit uh, w- with the goal of not just rescuing them from their enemies, but bringing them back to the Lord. Uh, and so part of the deliverance was, was, I would assume, teaching them the truth of God's word, calling them to repentance. Because why did they end up in this you know, horrible uh, situation in the first place? Well, it says because they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. And so I think one aspect of Othaniel's um, uh, redemption was not just delivering them from their earthly enemies, but reminding them, hey, you need to come back to Yahweh and trust in his word. He was also a warrior, um, which is, you know, I think an interesting aspect, something we see oftentimes from these deliverers or these judges. You know, these weren't, uh, I guess, governors in the sense that they're just sitting in the palace and, and ruling, but rather they're really on the ground. And from my right. own my own research, I found interesting the name, the king's name of Mesopotamia, Kushan Rishathaim, which evidently means Kushan the doubly wicked. So mm-hmm. <laughs> some people have noted that the Rishathaim part was probably added by the Israelites. Uh, but then again, maybe he went around with the name, I'm Kushan the doubly wicked. Uh, but regardless, we see sort of uh, this little moniker added to him to show just how how bad it was, and they were in servitude for something like eight years to these people. 
Yeah, and I think another thing we learned from this too, you know, uh, uh, when God's people sinned against him and, and forgot him and started serving these false gods, you know, God disciplined them. You know, God al- allowed them to face earthly hardship. And this is another example where, you know, sometimes out of love, God, you know, uh, uh, chastises his people and disciplines us um, and, and puts us through uh, tough times with the goal of, of leading us to repentance. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we suffer, it's because we're unrepentant. Sometimes, e- even if people are, are humble, faithful, repentant Christians, God may allow us to suffer, uh, not because we've done something wrong necessarily, but, but uh, because he's using that to strengthen our faith all the more, and even to give us opportunities to witness to others about the hope we have in Jesus. So I, I think it's important to remember that whenever we suffer, it doesn't always mean, oh, it's because I'm hardening my heart or being unrepentant. No, sometimes God even allows faithful Christians to suffer right. for reasons that he has. But here we do learn that when we do rebel against God, when we are living unrepentant lives, because God loves us, he will do what it takes to break us so that ultimately we can be saved. And so, uh, again, even behind this harsh treatment, we see the love and mercy of God. Well, and you mentioned earlier, following a judge would often come times of peace, and verse 11 illustrates that. So the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel died. So they they had 40 years of peace, presumably after he had gotten things under control. Um, And oftentimes it's this peace, as we talked about with Hosea a couple weeks ago, along with things like prosperity, peace is one of those aspects of life, leisure and other things, that kind of lulls people into a sense of self-reliance and people end up thinking they don't need to follow after God because things are going well. Uh, So it's almost like the times of peace were a gift of God, but a gift that was almost immediately misused by the people to then distance themselves from God. And we see that even today. Yeah, I mean, even in America today, I mean, I thank God for the the, the prosperity and the lifestyle we have. Um, and I, I know our parents and grandparents, you know, they always hear we, we want a better lives for our children. And, and peace and prosperity are gifts from God. We, we can certainly thank him for those. But then we're so capable of responding to those gifts in sinful ways. When we make idols out of our prosperity, when, when the peace uh, results in us becoming spiritually apathetic, uh, then, then these wonderful gifts from God uh, end up uh, being occasions for us to, to sadly, uh, 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 you know, uh, rather than being daily thankful and daily repentant for these gifts, uh, we take them for granted. And, and, and sadly, uh, uh, maybe even start uh, pursuing things that, that are ungodly. And so, you know, uh, uh, we can pray for peace, we can pray for prosperity, but sometimes God knows what he's doing when he allows us to face hardship. Sometimes we need that in order to, to live lives of humility before the Lord. As in all things, we must learn to pray, you know, thy will be done, and really mean it. So, folks, uh, it is time yeah. for a break. So before uh, before we go, though, I just want to say, uh, don't go anywhere. Pastor Eckstein and I will be back, and we'll continue opening up Judges chapter 3. So we'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boone. With me today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Folks, thanks for joining us today as we study Judges. I encourage you to email me at pastorboo at gmail.com with your feedback or find me on Facebook to ask questions or just say hello. Be sure to tell your friends and family to listen to Thy Strong Word on the radio in St. Louis, live or on demand at KFUO or through the KFUO app, or even as a podcast. Wow, there are so many ways to stay up to date. So I'm also encouraged that you tune in and grow in faith with us and my guests each weekday. So I just want to say thank you for listening. Now, uh, Pastor, before the break, we had just sort of kind of, I guess, finished up Othniel. I mean, besides going over into Joshua and, and talking a little bit more about his exploits, we kind of um, get the picture of his rescue Anything else before we move on to the second judge? Uh, not really. Uh, just that uh, in the remainder of this chapter, you know, we have these two other judges, Ehud, and then and then this guy where, where there's only one verse about him, uh, Shamgar. But but after this, uh, as you go forward in the book of Judges, you'll get into uh, uh, judges that are more well known. You know, we think of Deborah or or, or Samson. But these these judges here in in chapter three, they're they're a little less well known, and yet. God still used them. They were obviously important enough for the Holy Spirit uh, to include here in the Scriptures. Absolutely, and that's what we're going to read. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16, because this section about Ehud is a little longer than Othniel and much longer than Shamgar, Uh, but I'm just going to get us into the text, so just a few verses here to begin with. Here we go. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, And Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, it's right here in the middle of a thought, but that's where I want to end with the end of verse 15, just so we can get our, a taste of things. But once again, brother, the people have done evil in the sight of the Lord. And fascinatingly, it's just so direct, and the Lord strengthened the king of their enemies against yes. them. Wow, it's just, I mean, you know, if if the Lord is for us, who can be against us, we proudly say. Well, the Lord is literally for their enemies in this case. That is uh, yes. that is some consequences of sins that, that, that he's really laying down. Take us through it. 
Yes, well, you know, and this is another just good example of how in the future of Israel we're going to see that this happens again. You know, uh, God uses the Assyrians to to discipline the northern kingdom, and then when the uh, a few couple centuries after that, when the southern kingdom has a string of bad kings and they refuse to repent, God brings raises a Babylon against them, and so uh, th- this is a interesting reoccurring theme. Even though God could have, you know discipline them directly. You know, I, we think of the time he sent, you know, fire and brimstone onto Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, he, he uses the pagan nations themselves as his instrument uh, to discipline his own people. And so that's what we see going on here. And, uh, and then, of course, we're told that the Lord, uh, after the people cry out, you know, uh, God uses these horrible circumstances to break them and bring them to repentance. After they cry out, he does raise up this guy called Ehu, Ehud, and I find it interesting that it specifically mentions a left-handed man. Now, now, why would the Bible do that? Um, you know, and, and scholars, you know, have their opinions, but uh, uh, from some research I've done is that uh, uh, back in, in that time of, of uh, history, uh, people tended to view left-handed individuals as sort of the, the odd person, the odd person out. That wasn't normal. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that the Bible is teaching that left-handed <laughs> people are, are, are less human or that, you know, they're to be considered odd. That, that's not what this is saying here at all. I think this, what, what this is saying, though, is in that culture, uh, uh, at that time and place, individuals, people viewed left-handed people as odd and, and maybe not as useful. And yet, what do we see here? God takes what we would consider to be, you know, odd and not useful, and he uses it for his purposes to deliver his own people. Uh, so it, here we see that, that God works in ways that we would never expect. You know, he, he uses the weak to shame the strong, so to speak. I think that is fascinating. So left-handedness, uh, I think the Latin word, right, is sinister, <laughs> which we get um, this idea of left-handedness being sort of of the devil or having, you know, sinister simply means, you know, according to the left, but, you know, we it's been sort of reinvented in connection with this idea that there's something weird about lefties. Uh, my daughter, who's 11, Catherine, she is left-handed. So, but unfortunately, she's not much of a, she's kind of a weird one. So, <laughs> in the best, great, most, she's such, she's such a wonderful, creative kind of, uh, you know, oddity of a girl. I just love her to death. And I always joke, yeah, it's because she's left-handed. But, you know, the Benjamites had, I don't know if it indicated that they had a more than their fair share of left-handed people, but we haven't got there, of course. But in verse 20 of Judges, we learn about 700 chosen men from the Benjamites who were left-handed and, yes. and so they, to sling the stones. So I, I think it's kind of interesting and completely a, sort of a non-sequitur. Uh, my office manager at the church is named Benjamin, and he is left-handed. So, hmm, coincidence? I don't know. But in any case, this <laughs> left-handedness, um, yeah. And, and again, people probably recall uh, maybe 50, 60 years ago, if you were left-handed, you would almost be forced to learn to write with yes. your right hand. And Exactly. What a and, weird and, and superstition. And I think that was unfortunate. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's why I wanted to make clear that the Bible here is not teaching uh, as though God is saying, yeah, if you're born left-handed, you're cursed. That's not what, it, what, it's, what it's saying here. What it is saying, though, is that the culture, the people of that time right. 
had this odd idea that, oh, if you're left-handed, there's something wrong with you. And like you said, even up to a few decades ago in our own nation, they, they treated people that way. But I think what God is doing here is saying, okay, you think these people are odd. You think these people maybe aren't as uh, useful as you. Well, let me show you what I can do through these people. You know, I, I'm going to take the very people that you think are odd and, and not as useful and, and, and use them to redeem you. So it, it's a reminder that, that uh, all things are possible with God. Yeah. Well, let's keep on reading then into the narrative, because the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, at, which is what we're seeing the pattern, right? They do evil, they get punished, they repent and cry out for salvation, God hears them, and uh, and that's what's happened. So um, just starting with 15 again, just so we can have the context, I'll keep on reading. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. All his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool of his roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you, and he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked him, locked them. All right, that's where we're going to end for now. On uh, not such a savory image, but anyway, before we get to uh, that obvious elephant in the room, uh, it's interesting, though, because part of his left-handedness was used in a way, uh, you know, because he had his sword strapped in such a way that perhaps— um, people weren't expecting it. You know, if he's coming before the king, and this is just me you know, conjuring up in my head, but maybe maybe they would have checked in the obvious places for a sword, and yet because he was left-handed, he was able to sneak one in. I don't know. But anyway, uh, what do we make of this uh, besides poor Eglon uh, being described as a very fat man? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, you know, it's interesting. He says he was left-handed, but his sword was on his right side, yet hidden. And, and I'm not a military expert, so I don't know if I'm correct on this or not, but I, I would think if if you're right-handed, you would, for example, want to keep your sword on the side of your right hand, and in the same way, if you're left-handed, you would want to keep the sword on the left side, I would think. But, but here, it's almost like, okay, this guy's left-handed, so if he had a sword, it would be on his left side, right? Well, he, he didn't have it there. It was hidden on his right side. Mm. At least I think that's what's going on here. There's, like I said, God is using his left-handedness as a way of hiding the weapon and, and, you know, deceiving his enemies. I definitely and think then, his, of course, when, when the time is right. Well, I just, know, I, Ehud, I wanted to interject because I definitely think that the Lord is using his left-handedness to hide it, but I will have to push back a little bit. In my mind, if you're right-handed, your sword's going to be on your left side because it's a cross draw. So you're reaching across and grabbing it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know anything about sword cutting, <laughs> so you could be absolutely right on that. 
Uh, it's a, certainly not an important point, but but I think we are absolutely on the same page when his left-handedness comes in handy here. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and the fact that, you know, uh, and again, I don't know how well they checked him, the fact that he was hiding this shows, obviously, that, that he, he was giving the impression, I'm here in peace, but we, we obviously know what happens. He, he ends up um, uh, stabbing this leader uh, in the stomach uh, uh, so thoroughly that not only does the, the, the sharp point of the sword come out of his back, but the whole thing is absorbed into this man's obese body. And then, of course, yeah, we're given all these details about you know the, the fat uh, covering the sword and the dung coming out. It's, all, it's almost like Holy Spirit, you know, too much information here. <laughs> but... Uh, but but it, it it it's God's way of showing us, boy oh boy, uh, this huge powerful king is 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 shamed here. I mean, uh, he he's overcome by a left-handed man, and uh, in mm-hmm. such a way that that it, it's an embarrassing death, and um and so uh, uh, of course uh, Ehud leaves, and as you're going to read here in a little bit. You know the 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 servants of the king don't know what's going on. You know they 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 wait until it's almost embarrassing, and then later they find out uh, what has happened. And but the point here is is that that God uh, uses somebody uh, who who wasn't even considered to be a threat uh, to overcome this this person with great power and great arrogance, and 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 the person ends up dying in a very humiliating way. Well, that's certainly uh, humiliating for sure. And I want to point out, too, that the name Benjamin, and I just noticed this in my notes, uh, means son of the right hand in Hebrew. So there's a little irony going on here, too, with the left-handedness. But anyway, back to the the, the matter at hand. Yeah, so one thing that's interesting, though, to me is, and it is very, I guess, dramatic, but he says— I have a secret message for you. And, of course, that sends out all the attendants. And then he says, I have a message from God for you. And then he kills him. So it kind of, it's kind of like, I don't know, it, it's sort of like if you're watching a movie and it, it's like, you know, hey, uh, you, know, you know, the mob boss sent me. He has a message for you. And it's, you know, and they shoot him all up. It, it's, what I'm thinking about is, you know, people kind of get bent out of shape, at least the commentators do, because they want to twist it all to say, well, was he lying? Is this a lie? As if the judge, you know, is somehow going to be this perfect person in everything he does. But I want to ask you, you know, how do you take this? Is this some sort of like, is he being deceptive? And if he is, does it matter? <laughs> I mean, you know, is right. when he says, I have a message from God for you, uh, is that is that a message from God? Or is he just saying that to get him in private. I, you get what I'm saying. Well, obviously there was a double meaning here. You know, um, he said it in such a way that, that this king thought it was one thing, but Ehud obviously believed it was a different kind of message. <laughs> and right. uh, so, yes, there was some deception here. Now we can argue whether that was a sinful thing or not. You know, obviously when, whenever we use deception uh, to hurt people or to cover up our evil, um, you know, uh, that's wrong. Uh, on the other hand, though, you can think of other circumstances. For example, we think of, um, uh, uh, you know, some faithful Christians during World War II. They, they hid Jews in their homes to protect right. them. And, you know, uh, and, and, of course, when they were asked, you know, do you know where some Jews are being hit? Well, they said no. Now, we can get into a big debate about whether that was sinful or not. <laughs> the, the, the point is, though, um, you know, uh, here Ehud is being sent by God to bring 
vengeance and and judgment on this king. And so if, if part of that was was using deception to carry out God's uh you know uh judgment against him, uh then so be it. Um you know, uh Ehud was being used by God here to 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 do uh, uh, uh God's intentions. Now that doesn't mean as you said that that these judges are perfect. For example, down the road when you get to Sam Samson, uh, you're going to find out that that it, he had a few skeletons in his closet. He he definitely did some things for which he needed to repent. But in spite of that God used him too to help his people. So we see that going on here with Ehud. Let's finish out the narrative of Ehud. We're going to be reading verses 24 through 30. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for Yahweh has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. All right, so we've doubled the time of rest after this one. Uh, But here we go. So we're looking at this. uh, Again, some more, uh, I I suppose, uh, embarrassing type language. You know, he's been murdered, he's laying on the floor, and his servants think he's relieving himself. Um, You know, probably a, a whole paper could be written on everything from the dung coming out to him being relieving himself, but, but perhaps that's focusing on the wrong thing. But still, interesting, interesting details, as you said. Too many details. Yes, and uh, obviously not only is this king uh, killed in a very humiliating, embarrassing way, uh, but then uh, um, this opens the door for Israel to have an opportunity to, to strike back against the Moabites. Obviously, the Moabites still have an army, uh, but without their king, uh, they, they've been sort of dealt a humiliating blow. And then <clears throat> God works through Ehud and the armies of Israel to overcome the Moabites, even though it, it clearly says here that these Moabites, these 10,000 Moabites that were killed, were all strong, able-bodied men. So, you know, from an earthly point of view, it's like, boy, uh, sure, the king is dead, but can we even begin to, uh, you know, conquer these able-bodied, strong soldiers, and yet Ehud is very clear, follow me. The Lord has given us these enemies uh, into our hand. And so even though the, the, you know, the, 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 the Moabites appeared to be an unstoppable force, they, they trusted God through Ehud that, hey, God has given them into our hands. Let's trust the Lord to defeat them for us. And, and one other interesting observation here is that, and we see this a lot through the history of Scripture, God could have just, you know, uh, uh, destroyed uh, the armies himself. He could have sent a legion of angels. He could have poured down fire from heaven. But here we see God uses the armies of Israel to defeat the Moabites. And, and, and this shows, too, how, how God often works through means. Uh, he, he provides for us, and yet he uses our efforts, 
our abilities, our skills, our efforts uh, to bring about the provision and redemption that he wants to give us. So, so even though God is fighting for us, he's also using us uh, to do that fighting. And so we see that going on here with Israel. Yeah, God is a God of means. He uses instruments, and we are often his instruments, and that's absolutely what's going on here. You know, he sounds the trumpet. They all come down. Uh, he's their leader. Um, follow after me, Yahweh has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. All just sort of amazing language of him uh, redeeming them. Um, you know, it says, and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all abled, strong-bodied men, that sort of thing. Um, so it was subdued. Now, the Moabites, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but they weren't necessarily one of the nations that was what that, that they had to that, that they had to uh, eradicate, uh, although they still end up being part of uh, the enemies, of course, especially in this context. Um, so when it says the land had rest for 80 years after that, you know, is that significant that it's doubled or is it just a matter of fact, you think? Yeah, you know, I, I guess because the text itself doesn't say, you know, I mean, we, we, we can uh, speculate, I guess, but I think the safest bet is just to say uh, this is just a matter of fact. You know, before they had 40 years of rest, this time they had 80 years of rest. Um, but as we're going to see, um, you know, uh, as, as we uh, move forward in Judges, e- even though God blesses them with 80 years of rest, I mean— uh, um, uh, you think if even in America, you go back 80 years, you know, uh, 80 years takes us, you know, uh, uh, through multiple wars <laughs> that we've been through in the last 80 years, our own uh, mm-hmm. nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine having 80 years where there's just peace and nothing wow. going on. I mean, oh, wow, wouldn't that be awesome? And, and the, the, the proper response would be, God, you, you, you've given us this wonderful gift, 80 years of peace. We trust in you. We're never going to doubt you again, but then we know what happens. You know, rather than this 80 years of peace resulting in God's people coming closer to him and be more faithful to him, sadly, it's an occasion for them to forget about God. The faith is not passed on to the next generation, and they'll end up needing another judge in the future. But here, here we see that God in his mercy does give them 80 years of peace, which in this world is a blessing for any generation. And it's probably worth noting, too, that, you know, when the Bible uses numbers, sometimes they're very specific, even theologically significant numbers, and sometimes it's pretty just sort of like round numbers. And I would suggest that when they say about 10,000, they're rounding, you know, 80 years. It's probably not 80 years to the day. It's just, you know, roughly, you know, a couple generations. Um, So I think that's worth it, too, especially those who— sometimes get hung up on the numbers, especially if they want to start calculating them for various strange reasons. Um, We have one more judge before we end our program today, and this is Shamgar, uh, which we have, oh, we are just lousy with information about Shamgar, just a a embarrassment of riches, Uh, one whole verse. Here we go. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. The end. So we have here uh, one verse. This is the first of the so-called minor judges. Mentioned minor not because they weren't as uh, uh, powerful or salvific from the people as the rest of the judges. Just minor because we don't know a lot about them. Uh, And so we can obviously see why. Uh, What do we know about Shamgar outside this verse? 
Well, uh, obviously not a lot, uh, although I, I can't help but think it, it, it kind of prepares you for this amazing guy, Samson, because, you know, here it says Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which would have been probably a long pole with a metal tip that they would use to drive oxen. But we, we think of the time that Samson, as you're going to find out later on, you know, he uses the jawbone of a donkey to, to kill all these Philistines, you know, yep. single-handedly. So, so here we see this, this guy, you know, was empowered by God to do something very amazing. Uh, you know, one guy against 600, that's pretty awesome. But again, with God, all things are possible. Absolutely. Uh, one of uh, the uh, notes that I have, it says Shamgar, son of Anath, a Nat or Anath, was the actual Canaanite goddess of war. And so there is some conjecture here that perhaps Shamgar is a convert, one who maybe once was a follower of Anat, or maybe belonged to a battalion of warriors uh, uh, that were, you know, because since it is the uh, goddess of Anat is the goddess of war, you know, maybe it's just sort of this battalion of warriors, and so now he's kind of known as that. Regardless, we don't fully know, but it's just interesting to note that he's the son of not necessarily a, a Hebrew person, but a, the, a, a Canaanite goddess just thought that was kind of interesting i don't yeah. know if you ran into that yeah no that yeah i'm glad you brought that up that point because um now again i we wish we had more details you know is it even possible for god to use an unbeliever delivers people sure um but um uh here we see that that uh shamgar may have had some association with with idolatry and yet it's very possible that he could have been converted uh, and then used by God to bless his people. One, one thing I think of is when, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, back in Joshua, when they were uh, getting ready to, to, to uh, uh, take Jericho, you know, uh, uh, guess who God uses to give them an opening to go in there? Rahab, you know, uh, this, this Gentile woman who hears about the deeds of God in Egypt and actually puts her trust in him. So uh, that's another example of where God uses somebody that, that was not even part of Israel initially, and yet uh, brings her to faith and uses her to, to give uh, Israel victory over Jericho. So a similar thing may be going on here. Well, wonderful. You know, we, uh, we just got started with the judges, and there's going to be a lot more to come, but we're at the end of our time. So I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein. He's the pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Brother, as always, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, good to be here again. So, folks, join us tomorrow because we're going to get into Chapter 4 with Deborah and General Barack. And um, it is just an absolute, uh, you know, this is one of those things where you've heard about it in Sunday school, but join us tomorrow. You're going to get even more in-depth about it, perhaps even learn things you never knew before. Uh, But that's it for us today. Until tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. As we pray, Father, keep us in thine.